How many of you guys have been skydiving? Raise your hand if you've been skydiving before. Okay, a couple, few through the, the thing. So uh, when I graduated um, high school, my mom got me a gift. It's like a birthday present and a graduation gift to, um, to go skydiving. And I was one of the best gifts ever, right? We we're so stoked. And everyone was like, hey, are you, are you scared? And I'm like, no, I'm like not scared. And can we just admit that like 18-year-old guys have a dangerous level of confidence. Like there's, it's just like my little brother's that age and he just feels like he's invincible, you know? And that was not much different than 18 year old Austin. And so, oh no, I'm ready for it. I'm too amazing. So we get to the spot, we're hanging out and uh, my mom and I, you know, we're filling out all these forms and that starts to get you scared, you know? When you fill out 15 that are all like, you might die. You're like, and you're not gonna see, I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, you know? And so anyways, so, but you know, it's still staying strong, still confident. And then this dude walks in this like sketchier looking dude. And he's got a cigarette in his mouth that's lit, okay? It's not like a, like a you know, half one, you know, put it out, give it later, like literally lit. He has sunglasses on and his hair's all over the place. He's barefoot. And I'm like, and I'm like looking at him like, uh, and then the guys that have been having us fill out these forms are like, what's up, Jeff? He's like, hey guys. And they're like, the parachutes are over there. And I'm like, why do you need to tell him the parachutes are over there? Oh, he's, he's the one that folds them. The guy with the cigarette in his mouth, barefoot, he, yep. You've been doing that for a while? Oh yeah, he's great. I don't know if I trust that, bro. And the 18-year-old confidence is just dropping by the second. I like watch him like, oh man, he's just like this. He's like, sits down, starts rolling. I'm like, dude, I look at my mom. I'm like, are we sure? Like, we want to come back tomorrow. Just give him a rest, you know, like, I don't know. And so we go through it all and I'm like, okay. And then we, we walk us outside and they're like, you ready? I'm like, you sure? Like, you double checked it, like whatever. We get, in, we get in this rickety old plane and like we fly up. It's like 12,000 square foot or not square foot, but 12,000 foot. And uh, it's not a house, you know, whatever. It's, we're way up in the air, elevation. And it's like, it's at the point where I'm thinking like, I actually might feel safer jumping out of this thing than staying in it because it's like, it's just different. You know, it's not American Airlines, it's not Southwest. And so I'm like, this is weird. And, uh, and then they're like, they open up the door and I, I promise you, I screamed to the guy that was my guide. Does anyone ever not refuse to jump? And he goes, yeah, but that's not gonna be your, your story. And he like nudges me and I literally go like this and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I put my foot on the thing. He's like, you're good, man, go. And I'm like, I don't know, dude. Like, I'm just thinking of Jeff. I'm just like thinking of Jeff. And I'm like, what did he do last night? When did he wake up? What are his qualifications? Like all these things. I'm like, is this thing really gonna open? And, and so we go, we push my other leg out and I'm like, all right. And everything in me is like, don't go. And I jump and obviously I'm alive, but I'm thinking like it, my whole life was in Jeff's hands. You know, like Eden wouldn't exist and, you know, and Gracie and had and had Jeff. I don't know, but he just, he worked it out. He's the king, he's a legend. But, but um, it was a great experience. My mom and I loved it. But, but, but what I wanna, wanna draw out is that is that skydiving, jumping out of the plane really confronted my confidence in that parachute, right? Like I could wear that parachute all day long. I could wear it around and go to uh, lunch or uh, mall or do whatever. But the point where it would confront, am I really confident in that parachute is when I'm 12,000 feet up in the air and I have to decide whether to jump out and whether it's gonna catch me or not. That's the, that's the whole thing. And so in the same way that skydiving confronts our confidence in the parachute, confession confronts our confidence in the gospel. Like, like if you, you wanna know if you really believe in the gospel, look no further than how your willingness to confess your sin and own 
your brokenness. And so there may not be anything quite like confession that challenges us to step out of the proverbial plane and trust the gospel. So here's what I mean. If you really believe that all that matters is God's opinion of you, then you're free to confess and that confession might compromise what other people think of you and their opinion of you. If you uh, really believe that every sin you've ever committed and will commit was nailed to Jesus's cross, then you're free to own your darkest moments. If you're genuinely convinced that your best achievements and worst failures don't define you, then you're free to cling to Jesus and let his grace define you and who you are. So if you wanna know this morning how confident you are in the gospel, Look no further than your willingness to confess your sin. To actually say, this is how, this is how I've messed up. Um, confession confronts our confidence in the gospel. Now, uh, we're gonna finish, James. We've been in it for a few months and we'll finish these, this is the last section. And this last section, for some odd reason, I think is the most confusing passage potentially in, in the book, the whole book. And there's so much to it. There's so many unanswered questions, so many things. And, but in order to provide as much clarity as I can in simplicity, um, we're gonna hone in on verse 16 as the main verse, as the key verse. And we're gonna use the rest of the verses to help un- unpack and understand verse 16. And so I'll read it for you. Uh, but here's what it is. This is what we'll focus on. And we're gonna pick this verse apart word by word. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so uh, we're gonna look at that and to give a framework for the morning, we're gonna look at confession and intercession. So as we look at these, these, we're gonna almost look thematically at both of those things and to help understand what these verses are saying about confession and intercession. So that's where we're going. Now, uh, chapter five, verse 16, first word, therefore. Now, the classic phrase is what, what's therefore, therefore. Well, therefore is a connection word. It's a transition word bridging what was just said to what's about to be said. It's a cause and effect. Because this is true, this should be true. So um, my, uh, God calls me to lay my life down for my wife. Therefore, I watch Dateline with her. Okay, uh, God cares about the next generation. Therefore, I disciple three college students that I love. And we have a college ministry that, you know, and we, we're crazy about college students. Uh, God uh, cares about the nations. Therefore, I'm gonna engage people and I'm gonna allocate my, they are international students or refugees, or I'm gonna send uh, missionaries overseas, or I'm gonna go overseas. This, this whole collective reality, this is true. Therefore, this should be true. So, uh, Verse 16 starts with therefore. So it's connecting what was just said. Okay, well, great. Well, then what was said? We'll look at James 5, 15. The last words in this verse says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay, so that's the anchor statement that you can bank your life on. It's a promise statement. Jesus forgives all types of sins and all types of sinners. And I love that the sentence just ends there. The God, if, he, if he's committed sins, God forgives them. Not with a little asterisk at the end going, if you know, he keeps his life together from here on out, or if she completes her Bible reading plan next year, or if, uh, if he finally conquers that addiction that's been plaguing him for years. No, no, no. Just if he's committed sins, Jesus will forgive him. Right, that, that beautiful reality. Just scandalous grace and forgiveness to undeserved sinners like me and you. So that's the, the therefore it's connecting. So since this is true, God forgives sinners. If you've committed sin, they'll be forgiven. If you're in, in, in Jesus, therefore, and his following word is confess. 
So the verb, the, the, the response to that is then if that's true, if you have forgiven sins, confess. And this idea of confession, it's not just this like one-time thing, like I, one time I told a group of people that I did this. It's an ongoing, active, present verb. It's bringing the dark into the light. It's opening that sense of saying, this is where I'm at. It's admitting that you failed, acknowledging that you've missed the mark and broken God's heart and taking responsibility for your disobedience. It's just owning it all. I'm not going to embellish it. I'm not going to pretty it up. I'm not going to spray cologne or perfume on it. I'm just going to say, this is how I've messed up. So what are we supposed to confess? James says, therefore, confess your sins. The next two words, your sins. Now, if we can just be candid, we love talking about other people's sins. Like we're almost like borderline obsessed with it to where it's become pseudo entertainment for us. And, and it's like a scandal comes out and we're just like, oh, did you hear about what he did or what, what she did? And we're sharing it on social media and we're just like, and we're, it's, it's dominating conversations and it feels like we're like magnetized to people's failures. And my best understanding of why that's true is because we wanna distract ourselves from our own failures and our own scandals. It's too uncomfortable to talk about how I've failed. So let's talk about how they've failed to make me feel like I feel a little bit less. Make sense? And James is going, no, no, no. The thing you're supposed to confess is in other people's sins. It's your sins. It's your own struggle. So if you're talking more about other people's sin than your own, that's problematic. Another way to say it is if other people's sin bothers you more than your own, there's a problem. So many Christians act like God has given us this little plastic badge and said, I want you to go be my vigilante for this you know, community. I want you to be the church hall monitor and, and keep, this, keep this stuff in rain. And, and it's like busying our lives and making sure everyone else is doing the right thing. And it's like, man, I don't know if you've read your Bible. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus and the Pharisees had a problem consistently. And the Pharisees were so busy looking at how other people were breaking the law that they had convinced themselves that they weren't breaking it because they were so distracted. It's the classic, there's a log in your eye, but you're trying to take the speck out of someone else's. And James is going, spend your energy a different way. Don't, don't be talking and gossiping about other people's sins. Confess your own sins. And also what I love about this, this if you look at it, it's sins. It's plural. That, that is plural. So you don't just have sin, you've got sins, right? So you don't just have a little closet tucked away with your sins and whatever. You've got storage units all over town with your sin. You don't have a little pool. You have the Lake of Ozarks. You don't have a couple drops. You have a whole tsunami of sin in your life. Confess your sins. You've got enough to confess and talk about where you should be busy doing that, not busy looking at other people's um, sins and problems. And he says, well, okay, great. Who are we supposed to confess these multitude of sins to? He continues, therefore, confess your sins to one another, to one another. So confessing our sins to God um, is fairly easy. It's, it's hard, right? But it gets easier as we grow in our faith. It's kind of like someone catching you on camera and then going like, hey, so do you wanna explain what happened? That, I mean, it's like not like when we confess to God, he's like, whoa, really, you did that? You know, like when he comes to Adam in Genesis 3 going, where are you? And Adam's like, over here. God's like, yeah, I knew. And, and I, know, I know what happened, but I'm gonna I give you an opportunity to say what happened. You know, it's like, that's what confession is. But it becomes easy because we know that God forgives us. We know how he's gonna respond. 
infinite grace, right? Open arms. I love you. I'm for you. Come here. What are you doing? What, come, you know, like there's this beauty in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive and, and he's just and he cleanses us from all, all our unrighteousness. So there's this beautiful promise, this guarantee you can bank your life on. If you confess your sin to God, it's forgiven. And in Jesus's infinite grace, unconfessed sin to God is also forgiven. There's no way we can confess all our sin, right? So it's, we just know he's gonna, this is how he's gonna respond. But it makes it problematic because we can't say that same thing is true of others, right? So this call, hey, confess your multitude of sins to other people. We're like, ooh, I'm good with God. I, li- I like confessing to him because I know what he's gonna do, but I don't know how they're gonna respond if they hear that. So you, let's be honest, you might lose a friendship if you confess that sin to somebody. It's gonna be awkward, you know? Like there's a reality, they may go tell somebody else, and people have had that. They may judge you and see you differently and never see you the same. And so it's, easy, it's infinitely easier to confess to God because we know how he's gonna respond, but it's a gamble confessing to other people. And yet James still says, confess your sins to one another. And yet we go, I don't know. And we choose to lie or embellish or tell a half truth or hide or downplay or whatever it may be. And he's going, man, this is the call um, to confess your sins to one another. And I wanna point out too, one another is a mutual term. He doesn't say confess your sins to someone. He says confess your sins to one another, which means as you're confessing your sins, the ideal is that they're mutually confessing their sins, right? So there's this aspect where it's, if you're singularly confessing and someone else isn't confessing back to you, you can go, I'm on the struggle bus alone and I've got all this shame in my life and there's something dangerous about that. And so when anyone confesses sin in my, in, to, to me, I'm trying to think, how can I make sure this person knows I'm broken too? You know, I, I do premarital uh, uh, counseling or in, in some form, but I do a lot of weddings and I'm meeting with couples. And before I get uh, agreed to marry them, I'm just asking them, here's four things I'm wanting you to do. Like, are you walking with Jesus? Are you committed to the gathered and scattered church? Are you committed to premarital counseling? And are you walking in purity? And every time the purity thing is like 99%, I mean, everyone's feeling that for sure, but it, it's, it's just awkward. It's just a hard conversation. And I just lead the way and go, I just want you to know, my wife and I did not bat a thousand in this area. This is a struggle until the last day, until we got married. This is something we had to fight. This is something we failed in. So they just know, this, is, this isn't me inviting you into the, whatever. And I'm talking with guys, I'm struggling with this. And so, so, the invitation to confess our sins to one another is, it's not to say once someone confesses, jump on and confess your stuff too, but to say to hear them, to listen to them, to ask questions and draw those out. And you might not have the same sin you're struggling with. It might not be as prevalent in this moment, but there's a sense to say, I want you to know, I will not, I will never, like God forbid, any of us ever have a moment where someone has opened their heart, confessed their sin, and we let them walk away thinking we're spotless. That's the idea. Confess your sins to one another. Bring, bring that up saying, hey, I'm on this thing too. The, the, I'm, I'm at the feet of the cross. I'm at the foot of the cross too. I need this grace just as much as you do. And then he says, in odd phrases, he finishes the verse, he says, and pray for one another. Um, so confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. <clears throat> so this shows us the response to confession. You want to confess one another? Okay, here's the response afterwards. We should 
pray for one another, which is this second theme we're gonna look at in the text. So there's a lot of different ways to pray and to engage God within prayer. There's prayers that are adoration, just looking, God, you're so glorious, you're so beautiful, looking at who he is. There's prayers of thanksgiving, God, thank you for doing that. There's prayers of supplication, God, would, would you provide this? Would you give this? There's prayers of confession, God, I'm so sorry. I hate that I did that, I hate that I broke your heart. And then there's prayers of intercession, which is going to God on someone else's behalf. Um, and asking him to help. And so um, this is the type of prayer that James is inviting us into in verse 16 through this passage, intercession. And, uh, and it's the other main uh, idea that we're gonna draw out. So there's two stories of intercession in the Bible that particularly uh, shape the way I intercede for somebody. The first one is in Mark 5. Mark chapter 5, it's a guy, it's a dad named Jairus, and he's, and he's interceding for his little daughter. Now, uh, Jairus is a ruler of a synagogue. He's a, um, he's a good man. He loves God, and his little daughter is sick to the point of death. And so, and um, beyond the help of any doctor, any medicine, whatever, and so he finds Jesus, his only, his last hope. In Mark 5, verse 23, here's his intercession for his daughter. He says, he implored Jesus earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, let Lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. That's his intercession. Now, I'm a dad. I've got two little girls that I'm crazy about, and I've never seen them at the point of death, and I pray that I never do. Um, but I can just imagine the internal disarray of my soul if, if, that were, if, that were, if that had happened. I'm just, I'm thinking, man, you're, you're their dad. You know, you, you wanna protect them. You wanna guard them. And this happened and what do I do? And, and I just know for any dad in the room, you, you would do anything short of sin to protect your daughter, right? And that's where Jairus is. And by the way, for him to ask Jesus to heal his daughter would be to risk everything because Jesus doesn't, the synagogue rulers and Jesus don't get along. So for him to affiliate with Jesus means to be blacklisted by them. For him to, say, would you heal her, is to profess and believe you're the Messiah healer. So he's probably gonna lose his job because of this. But it doesn't matter. Any, any dad in the room would lose your job for your daughter, you know? And he, and he goes, and, he, and so in this risky, desperate act of faith, he goes, Jesus, would, would you do this? Would you help me? Would you help my daughter? She's, she's, almost, she's almost gonna die, you know? And, and so I wanna point out two things about his intercession. Number one is that word implore that he implored Jesus, means to beg. That's simply what that word means, implore. We don't use that word, but it means to beg. And it says he fell at Jesus's feet. So catch me, here's a phrase. Intercession is a posture of humble begging, admitting you can't do anything to solve that problem. That's what intercession is. That's the imploring, that's the begging. That's the, Jesus, I just, I can't help her. I can't help him. I can't solve this thing. And I'm begging you, would you do it? Because you're the only one that can. So Jairus' intercession came as an expression acknowledging it's out of his hands. There's nothing he can do to fix it. The second thing I wanna point out is he says he implored Jesus, so he begged Jesus, it says earnestly. Now that word earnestly, most of the time in the New Testament is translated to many, so, uh, it, or a lot, or a lot of times. So the idea is that he implored, he begged over and over and over and over again. That's the earnestly idea. So intercession isn't just a posture of humble begging. It's a perpetual posture of humble begging, admitting you can't do anything to solve that problem or help that person. Um, so it's the picture of Jairus asking Jesus over and over again. That's earnest imploring, aka intercession. And so now look at our passage, James 5, verses 19 through 20. 
He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever wanders back or brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now I'm convinced that these verses are a continuation of verse 16. If someone has wandered from the truth, maybe they grew up in church, maybe they know the right Bible verses and have the right friends, maybe they had a Christian education, maybe, uh, maybe they got baptized, maybe they led a Bible study, but they're in a prodigal season wanting nothing to do with God. They wandered away from him. Um, James is saying that uh, the, the reality here is that you acknowledge in your intercession that you can't bring them back. You can't bring them back. And, and I know it's odd because the verses literally use the language, if anyone brings back a wandering sinner. But that can't be what he's talking about, that we can bring back. Why? Because verse 20 says, if you bring back a sinner, his soul is saved and his sins are covered. Let's just make sure we're all on the same page. You can't save a soul and you can't cover sins. That's something only Jesus can do. So our intercession of or the way we bring back a wandering sinner is by asking Jesus to bring back the wandering sinner. But we can't bring them back. You know, it's basically going, God, would you do this? And it's an admittance that I can't bring them back. And I know in the room, as I'm looking around, there are prodigals probably in this room, they're going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. And I'm just begging, interceding, God, would you, would you bring them back? I can't do it. I can't compel them. I can't say the right thing. I can't, whatever. Would you bring them back? And I know within this room, there are parents with kids that are prodigals that are running. And, and it's just like, man, what, what do I do? I, I, and I'm going, intercede. Remember, you can't bring them back, but Jesus can. He does what only he can do. There, we have sisters and, and brothers and friends and best friends that are walking away and it's going, um, don't stop interceding, keep praying. If you know the end of the story with Jairus, his daughter dies, or the story continues, his daughter actually dies on the way to go uh, with him and Jesus. And everyone's sad, everyone's like, we should not bother Jesus. And Jesus immediately turns to um, Jairus and says, um, Keep, keep the faith. Don't, don't, don't stop believing. He says, don't fear, only believe. In other words, keep begging me to do this. Like keep asking. So for all those spaces, those wandering sinners, our intercession is to go, God, I just, it seems like they're so far gone. And yet I know that you can bring them back. And we continue to ask and beg him. And Jesus does. He raises Jairus' daughter to life. That's the first example of intercession. The second example of intercession is in John chapter 11. It's one of my favorite verses and stories. And so there's two of Jesus' friends. There's Mary and there is Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus, who's Jesus's friend. Now, Lazarus is sick. He's at the point of death as well, just like Jairus's daughter. And in John 11, verse three, again, one of my favorite verses, uh, especially about intercession, here's what it says, John 11, verse three. Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. That's it. It's one of the most beautiful and profound intercessory prayers you'll ever read. Here's why because it has nothing to do with the people praying and it has nothing to do about what the person they're praying for has done. I'm gonna say that again. It has nothing to do with the people praying or with what the person they're praying for has done. So sometimes when we pray for someone or we pray for thing for something, we kind of subtly remind God of what we've done for him and the good, hopefully wanting to elicit his quicker response. Hey God, you know, I've been doing this and we think it'll catch his divine attention. Um, Mary and Martha don't do that. 
They don't go, hey God, it's Mary and Martha who cooked you that amazing casserole in Luke chapter 10. You remember you said you liked it? You liked the flavors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, it's Mary, the one who washed your feet and anointed them with oil. Doesn't say that either. Um, the one whom you love is ill. And uh, they also don't mention anything about Lazarus. You think like, hey, Jesus, remember your bro Lazarus? Remember that guy? He's awesome, isn't he? Remember when he helped you fish and you guys were doing your thing and it was awesome. You guys took that selfie on the, no, no, like there's nothing of it. The one whom you love is, is ill. Now, some of you guys know Mozart Dixon. Uh, if you don't, you should. He, uh, him and I planted this church together uh, over six years ago and God called him and his family to New York City. So they're planting churches there. But I love that guy. He's one of my closest friends. And, um, and Mo's had a hard, just a hard life. Like there's no other way to say that. Um, uh, his first wife uh, passed away in a car accident, tragic car accident when they were in college. Um, his dad had been, has been absent for most of his life. And a few years ago, he found out that his mom, Mary, had terminal cancer and she was, she was gonna die from. And I'll never forget uh, that phone call from him that uh, he, when he, they found out for sure that it was terminal. And I remember my prayer after that was so confused and like, God, why? Like Mo has been through so much. And, um, you know, and he loves you and he, and he serves your church and he's given everything and why, you know? And Mary, like I remember her membership meeting talking about Jesus. I remember her serving coffee every single week and I'm going, oh, why? Like, why is this happening? Like, God, would you help them? But I, there was something subtle in my heart that was saying like, would you help them because they're amazing, you know? Like, these are good people. Like, we need them, you know? And, and, and Mary's amazing. Like, would you, would, you, would you heal her and save her? And there's this whole reality. And, but, it, but Luke, or John 11 verse three is so different than that, isn't it? Lord, the one whom you love is ill. The, the verse isn't the one whom loves you is ill. The verse is the one that you love is ill. And so, so that is our confidence. Like, like that not that we love God or that the person we're praying for loves God and so he should heal them, but that he loves them and that would be the only basis he would ever heal them. Does it make sense? So our confidence in our intercession for people isn't that they love God or that we love God so he should listen, but that he loves them. Every time when my kids are sick, God, uh, Eden, the one you love is sick. Haddon, the one you love can't sleep. Gracie, the one you love uh, has anxiety. Kristen's dad recently had a brake malfunction and actually backed his car into the lake and like, wild. Kristen calls me bawling, didn't know what was happening yet, just knew that he had that it happened and, and, and would you pray in the very first words, God, the one whom you love needs you. Like the one, like helped on, you know, because you love him. Now, I'm not gonna throw out because he loves you or because of whatever, just the one whom you love needs your help. They're not magic words, but they're, they're all we've got. So hear me say this. The only reason God would respond to our intercession isn't the merit we possess in our prayer or the merit the person possesses that we're praying for, but it's all on the mercy of God. It's all on the merit of Jesus and what he's bought. It's all by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. So intercession is begging God based on his love for us, not our love for him. That's the difference. Now, if you look at verse 14, it says, if you're sick, let 
them let, call, call the elders to pray. And then if you look at verse 16, he continues, says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. So you can take verse 14 saying that elders are supposed to pray for sick people. And you can take verse 16 that there's righteous people that have this powerful prayer. And you can take those both and come to the conclusion that there are certain people who have powerful prayers and there are certain people who don't have powerful prayers, right? Like it could be easy to think that. My grandma, bless her heart, she's amazing, but she'll call me and she's like, hey, Austin, I really need you to pray. This thing's getting serious. Um, um, but, you know, I've asked a lot of people, but I need you, you to pray. What do you mean? And she'll go, well, James, you know, five, the prayer of a righteous person has a lot of power. As if, like, for some reason, me as a pastor, God hears me differently. And I'm like, Grandma, I promise he hears you just as much as he hears me, and he hears you more because you're better at praying than I am, you know? And, yeah, and so it's like, the, no, 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 you just make sure. And so um, if James has shown us anything, if you've been with us for the last few months studying this book of James, if there's one thing he's shown us is that there is not a single person in this room that's righteous. Anyone wanna look at what James has said these last couple months ago? Yep, I'm, I'm the righteous person he's talking about in verse 16. Anybody? No, no, not at all. So he can't be talking about someone who's practically righteous, right? Like no, there's no way because none of us are and he's made that clear. What he is talking about is positionally righteous, that you have been made right by Jesus, that if you've trusted in him, him as both Savior and Lord, that he has imputed his righteousness in the great substitution where he took your sin upon himself on the cross and he, and he subsequently gave you his righteousness and perfection. So you are now declared the righteous one, not because you are practically righteous, but you are positionally righteous, hidden in Christ like Colossians 3 says. So that's who John or James 5, verse 16 is talking about the person who's trusted in Jesus as Savior declared righteous by the Father. So that's the righteous person who has power in prayer. Not practical, but positional. And, and, and so um, here's what that means in light of intercession. If you've trusted in Jesus as both Savior and Lord, you have God's ear just as much as Billy Graham and Mother Teresa did. You have God's ear and attention just as much as John Piper or Jenny Allen does. Like that's the beautiful reality of um, us being made righteous in Jesus that he hears us. Normal you, ordinary you, simple you, he hears you. So in other words, this is still going back to John eleven three. The power for your intercession doesn't come from you and it never will. That's why he mentions the prophet Elijah in verse 17. And he says, so if you look at verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Those are super significant words. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So um, God listened to Elijah, right? In a wild, bizarre way. Um, and he wasn't because he was practically righteous. Because he wasn't. He, James knows that. And that's in First Sam, or First Kings 17, this prayer happens and all this stuff. But then in First Kings 19, um, um, Elijah is suicidal. He goes, God, take my life. He just throws the towel and I'm done. He says, I've had enough. And so he's not practically righteous. There's some problems in his life and yet he is positionally righteous because he trusted in God and that's why God heard his prayer. So when he says his example of Elijah as this man with our own nature, he doesn't say that he, he did everything perfectly, but he says he prayed fervently. That was the thing he's drawing out. So not his practical righteousness as if he's saying, hey guys, listen, if you can be as good as Elijah, 
God will hear your prayers. Even if it can be so good, maybe you could pray and he would change the rain. No, his example is that God listens to fervent prayer despite our failures. That's what he means. At, with a nature like ours, he's broken too. And yet God hears them just like he does any of us if we're fervently praying. We're actually begging and we're earnestly imploring, imploring God. That's the kind of prayer that uh, intercessory prayer James is inviting us to. And that's what Jairus did as well. So what's it mean when he says that a prayer of righteous person uh, has great power? I, I think two things. One, I mentioned this, or I might've mentioned this earlier, but when he says confess to one another, that's not an invitation to confess to anyone and everyone, to be clear. Almost all the commentaries I read was like very particular. There are certain people you should confess to and certain people you shouldn't. So this verse is actually implicating the who is the one another. And he says, the prayer of a righteous person that is praying over you. So who should you confess to? Someone righteous. Someone, not practically, but positionally righteous that gets the gospel, who loves Jesus. So it might be alleviating to confess to a stranger on the street, right? Hey, I did this. Wow, that's weird. See, I'll never see you again, you know? Like, but it, it won't be healing. It might be relieving, it won't be healing. And they won't preach the gospel over you. They won't pray for you. They won't uh, lead you to the, to the cross. They won't hold you accountable. They won't check back in. And so we're, the call is to pray and to confess our sin to someone that's righteous, that gets the righteousness of Jesus, that won't let you sit in that shame, that, but will lead you to the cross and, um, and remind you, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's why verse 14 says to go to the elders to pray. Because elders are a great example of someone who cares about you and who should know you if you're a member. And like this reality is say, uh, they're gonna point you to the cross and they're gonna genuinely pray. So that's what we're supposed to confess to. And then also, second thing I'd point out is this is showing us how we should respond to someone confessing to us. The prayer of a righteous person has much power and it's working. So anytime someone confesses to me, I'm automatically in my mind going, I need to pray for them. Like if I let them leave without praying, that's a failure. I'm gonna get my hand on their shoulder. I'm just gonna ask Jesus. I'm gonna preach the gospel to them, but I'm also, I'm just gonna put my hand on the shoulder. God, would you be so gracious? Um, and, and, and I just, hopefully this doesn't feel apathetic to say, but so many people are so concerned about praying out loud and I get it and it's nervous. And I'm a pastor, I've been doing it for a while, but I'm telling you like, man, if you're concerned about the way you sound in praying, you've missed it. And I don't know about you, but impressive prayers aren't impressive to me. It's like the raw prayers, like the ones that are just like, I don't even know what to say, but I'm just talking to you. I'm going, do you know how beautiful it is? Do you know how much of a privilege it is to hear somebody talk to God on your behalf? And because of our insecurity, we're, we're robbing people of that. And it's just like, no, I'm not gonna say the right word. In fact, I might say something wrong or weird, but I'm not gonna be too insecure to let you in and to let you know, this is how I'm talking to God on your behalf. So let people in, who cares if it's weird? Like there's something pure. Kristen and I are teaching our kids right now how to intercess, like to pray in intercession. Just, hey, is there anybody on your heart that you know needs prayer? Yeah, this, Haddon's little friend does. Okay, well, let's pray right now. What, what do you think they need help for? Well, this, awesome. Or, and it's just like, and they're just praying, they're interceding and I'm teaching them. But it, there's something about just, just do it. Like it's such a gift and a privilege to hear somebody pray and talk to God on your behalf. And then the phrase, maybe the most tricky, five words, it's in the middle of uh, verse 16. Um, pray for one another that you may be healed, that you may be healed. Now in this context, it's um, to kind of finish the sermon, James is ambiguous into what kind of healing he's talking about. Uh, um, is it physical 
healing? Is it spiritual healing? Commentators have disagreed on this all over. People, sides that I really admire, but a lot, some scholars believe almost probably the more predominant thought is that this person had sin in their life and they were sick because of it or around it or something. And as they confessed their sin, God both healed them physically and spiritually, which Jesus often does. If you look through the gospels, he heals someone's physical ailment and then he heals their spiritual ailment. So there's some connection within that. I'm gonna leave that slightly ambiguous because I don't think it's the main point, but what church historians have agreed on collectively through centuries is that there is a healing power in confession. That there is something unique and beautiful that happens when we let people know how we are feeling. There's something beautiful about another per- person knowing the worst of me and still loving me. There's somewhat, something extraordinary about, uh, uh, about having no hidden sin in my life that I'm actually fully known. There's something refreshing about having someone speak the gospel over me directly in light of my opposition to the gospel and disobedience to God. And so when you confess your sin to someone, expect there to be some degree of healing. And so in light of that, church, Christians, if someone confesses to you, embrace a healing role with gospel medicine in that moment, okay? And embrace a healing role with gospel medicine in that moment. For some reason, when people confess to us, we think what they need in that moment is how to fight that sin, which there's a place for that. I love all that stuff, but that's good advice and what they really need is good news, so in any of those interactions, when someone goes, man, I'm just really failing at this, your knee jerk shouldn't be, well, here's the app to download and here's the thing that worked for me. The, God, the, the, reality, the response should be, Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. So you should just know flat out, first thing I want you to know, you're uncondemnable and, and you're so lovable to the Father, not because you're, you're good or whatever, but he hasn't changed his mind about you. It's the first thing. And then once that's established and they've got the gospel medicine, well, then take them to physical therapy, you know? Like then take them to actually walk and get right and do that. But there's that reality where we're just constantly wanting to preach the gospel. And, and that's what actually comes through healing. But how fitting is it? You know, after reading particularly, potentially the most convicting book of the Bible, with all the imperatives and with all the conviction that he ends it with a plea to confess your sin and pray for one another. That as you look, it's almost like he's, he's like, it's almost like he's looking back through his letter and going, man, I really laid it on him thick, didn't I? And they're like, yeah, you did. And then he's like, cool, man. Well, let me just finish with just remind people that God forgives sins, the multitude of sins. Let me, let me beg them to confess their sin to just own it, just to not try and act like you got your life together. Don't walk out of this room thinking, yeah, I nailed it, but own your sin and intercede for people because they've got sin too they're struggling with and, and, they, and they need prayer and a lot of that confession. So this James, I just love that he would end so pastorally with this. Hey, confess your sins. You've got a lot of them and intercede for your brothers and sisters who are dealing with their sins too and watch Jesus bring back those wandering sinners and, uh, and continue to establish um, us struggling sinners in the gospel. Tim Keller famously said, to be loved but not known is superficial. You say you love me, but you don't really know me, so it doesn't mean a lot. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. I I, I shared this with you and you chose not to love me. That's our greatest fear. He says, but to be fully known and fully loved, well, that's a lot like the love of God. And that's what we have in Christ, fully known, fully loved, fully free. Let's pray.